0: Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.
1: Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more. All built to last. Support for The Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys.
2: Hi there, welcome to The Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with a mini episode this week to mark a particular moment in time. A year since our city went into lockdown due to the COVID-19 pandemic. A year of anxiety anxiety and mourning for the entire country and for the world. But a pandemic that hit New York City very severely with over three quarters of a million cases and over 30,000 deaths since March, 2020. But things we hope are getting better, albeit slowly and back towards normalcy, thanks in part to, well to be blunt, pharmaceutical companies. Well, really, thanks to the scientists, the researchers, vaccine volunteers, physicians, nurses, and technicians who have developed these new COVID-19 vaccines that are currently being injected into the arms of millions of people each day. Many of you listening already have one of these vaccines currently coursing through your bloodstream, some of them with futuristic Jetsons-like names, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Moderna, named for the modification mRNA, from which their vaccine is based, is a fairly new biotech out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. But two of the biggest producers of COVID-19 vaccines in the world actually trace their origins to 19th century America and to New York and New Jersey, actually. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine, that's the one-shotter, was developed by the Belgian Janssen Pharmaceuticals, which has been owned by Johnson & Johnson since 1961. You were most likely bathed when you were a baby with Johnson & Johnson No More Tears baby shampoo. And when you scraped your knee falling off that bike as a kid, you probably became familiar with another Johnson & Johnson product, Band-Aid. The brothers Johnson, there were actually 11 children, but three of them that went into business, they were the sons of a poor Pennsylvania farmer. Robert Wood Johnson was sent to be an apprentice at a Poughkeepsie, New York apothecary shop during the Civil War, then went into business with New York dealer George Seabury in 1873, producing medical plasters at a plant in Brooklyn. But by 1886, he had ventured out with his two brothers, James Wood Johnson and Edward Meade Johnson, to form the company we know today in New Brunswick, New Jersey. The company is still based. But I want to talk about the origins of the other company producing a COVID-19 vaccine that many of you are benefiting from at this very moment. And that company is Pfizer. Pfizer is much older than Johnson & Johnson. The story of Pfizer is a story of German immigration, of early medical practices that might seem almost bizarre to us today. And it's also a story of Brooklyn, of the city of Brooklyn, in the mid-19th century, right when that independent city was really developing into an economic force in the United States and quite in opposition to the city of New York across the East River. The German biotech company Biopharmaceutical New Technologies, or BioNTech, developed the vaccine injection with Pfizer, who are manufacturing and distributing it. So it's appropriate that it's in Germany where this story begins. Carl Christian Friedrich Pfizer, later Charles Pfizer, was born on March 22, 1824, in the city of Ludwigsburg, within the Stuttgart region of southern Germany. And as a young man, he apprenticed in an apothecary, becoming obsessed with the study of chemistry. He also became fascinated with the United States, back then only a few decades as an independent nation. As his daughter Alice later wrote, "...to my father, young and enthusiastic, brimful of ideas which were moving the souls of his contemporaries, nothing in Europe seemed worthy of the tremendous efforts required to reform and renew and upbuild the land of his birth." But there, on the other side of this great Atlantic Ocean, was a new country not only full of countless opportunities, but also opening its arms to all those who would come and help upbuild it. And so in the fall of 1848, Charles Pfizer boarded a ship in Bremen and sailed to the United States. Joining him was his cousin Charles Erhart. They were just two of almost half a million Germans who immigrated to the United States in that decade, the start of an extraordinary wave of German immigration which would last throughout the century. Pfizer and Erhardt were like many German immigrants from this period, educated with some financial support, heading to the United States to start a business. What makes Pfizer unique was his pursuit of a scientific business. The practical applications of science to modern life were just beginning to be explored in America in the early 19th century. All sorts of scientific breakthroughs were taking place back home in Germany, but Pfizer was taking his training to a country not yet internationally known for scientific advancement, except of course for people like Benjamin Franklin. And the application of chemicals to daily life was almost unknown on these shores. According to author Jeffrey L. Rodingen, quote, "...chemicals that once interested only scholars were becoming indispensable in manufacturing, agriculture, and medicine." Pfizer also recognized that in the new nation of America, virtually no one was meeting the growing demand. The Cousins first lived in Hoboken, New Jersey for a short time, but then in 1849 identified an area of Kings County on the western side of Long Island as a choice location for a new chemical operation, very close, of course, to the city of New York. It was, of course, very important to be close to one of the most important business centers in the United States, but they did not move to the thriving city of Brooklyn, which was just southwest of their intended spot and south of the vast navy yard that was along the waterfront here. Now, the cousins instead had their eye on a spot in the town of Williamsburg, north of the burgeoning Brooklyn metropolis. Now, the modern neighborhood of Williamsburg in today's borough of Brooklyn is a place of contrasts, from condos along a gentrified waterfront to one of the centers of Orthodox Jewish life in New York. But in the 1840s, this former farmer's village was an independent town and quite attractive to budding industrialists thanks to its proximity to the waterfront and to the already busy waters of Newtown Creek. Chemical and oil plants were already home here when the cousins arrived in America. And in particular, a large number of German immigrants already lived here, in a small district nicknamed Dutchtown or Deutschtown. By the 1850s, the industrial district stretched the length of the waterfront, and inland one could find all sorts of concerns for glass, sugar, rubber, gas, and beer. Pfizer and Earhart could not afford to develop directly along the waterfront. In fact, Pfizer had to ask for a $2,500 loan from his father. Now, today, that's about $78,000. So that's a big deal. And they use much of this money to purchase a pre-existing red brick building at Bartlett Street and Tompkins Avenue. For over a century and a half, the newly named Charles Pfizer and Company would use this location as an office, laboratory, factory, and warehouse. But what will they be making here, you may ask? Because neither of these men were associated in any way with the medical profession. In fact, cousin Earhart here was actually trained in the grocery and confectionery trade, a fact that will come into play in just a bit. But before I totally gross you out on this idea, I need to back up just a little bit and explain the relationship between medicine makers and sick people in the 1840s. It's hard to overstate how little we knew about the underlying causes of disease and illness back in these days. As author Bob Zabrowski writes, quote, 18th and early 19th century apothecaries and physicians thought in terms of drugs that could be used to treat symptoms, and consequently the drugs were classified that way. Symptoms, that is, not root causes. Remedies for these symptoms could be found at your local apothecary made from natural ingredients by hand. Believe it or not, here in New York, there are at least two businesses today that trace themselves to former 19th century apothecaries. In 1838, a Vermont doctor named Galen Hunter opened an apothecary shop on 6th Avenue in Greenwich Village, an area of town rapidly developing at this time with the residences of New York's wealthy elite. In 1880, this business would be purchased by one Clarence Otis Bigelow. And as C.O. Bigelow's, this place still remains in operation today, although as a much more traditional and modern pharmacy. Meanwhile, over in today's East Village, a German immigrant named Louis Brunswick opened an apothecary in the year 1851 on 3rd Avenue. In the 1880s, the business was taken over by another man, John Keel. And this is where we get the Keel's line of beauty creams and ointments today. Bigelow's actually also has a well-known beauty product line. And these trace back to the idea of the apothecary as a place where natural ingredients are mixed to relieve pressing symptoms. But while natural remedies are obviously effective for many problems, measurements and product quality varied from place to place. In addition, there were patent medicines of all sorts, potions and snake oils that had no connection whatsoever to health professionals and no proof that they even worked. It is into this that Pfizer and Erhart produce their first product from this little factory here in Williamsburg. Santonin, made from the wormseed flower found in the Middle East, a plant with an extremely bitter taste. So thank goodness, Pfizer's cousin was a confectioner, skilled in the craft of making candy. A chemist and a confectioner might seem like an odd couple today, but even going back a few centuries, both roles were sometimes held by an apothecary. Just go over to your medicine cabinet. How many of your medicines have flavor? Most pharmaceuticals would be hard to swallow without additives literally meant to make the medicine go down. And Santonin was no exception. Pfizer's Santonin that tasted, well, maybe not very good to us today, but it was palatable enough. It had an almond toffee flavor. It was important that it be digestible because it was meant to solve a very serious problem that many faced in the mid-19th century, a very grotesque condition, intestinal worms. How Pfizer went from fighting worms to fighting viruses after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly.
1: Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South
0: It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.
2: Intestinal worms were a disturbing problem that vexed urban dwellers going back centuries, but were particularly common with children whose infections and pain were often more pronounced. Patent medicines for treating worms were quite popular because many in the market were actually quite effective, and newspaper classified pages during much of this period were filled with advertisements for a wide variety of, quote, worm lozenges. In fact, a popular endorsement of a product named Sherman's Worm Lozenge, appeared in newspapers across the country, the endorsement made by Galen Hunter, the man who would later open that apothecary shop in Greenwich Village. Pfizer's almond toffee-flavored worm medication in the shape of candy cones sounds horrible, but provided a helpful solution to nervous parents trying to get their irritable children to take their medicine. The product was a huge success, allowing Pfizer to expand into other products. Now, they stepped away from making novel items like worm-destroying candy cones and instead focused on producing chemicals of different types, including iodine, borax, and camphor. These would not be medications in themselves, but finished chemicals used by other manufacturers to make a host of different products. Meanwhile, as business was just getting off the ground here for the cousins, exciting things were happening in the neighborhood. In 1852, for a brief and shining moment, the town of Williamsburg became its own independent city. But less than three years later, this fledgling little city would be swallowed up, incorporated into the expanding city of Brooklyn, one of the first municipal mergers in American history. Williamsburg, along with Greenpoint and Bushwick, would then be collectively known as the Eastern District. And speaking of mergers, I should add that in 1856, Charles Earhart married his cousin Fanny Fizer, the sister of Charles Fizer, so now we can call them brother-in-laws, not just cousins. The course of medicine in the United States and of healthcare forever changed during the Civil War, not only due to the necessary treatment of mass affliction and casualty, but to combat the rapid spread of disease during this period. For instance, as I mentioned in a show last year, the modern ambulance service was invented during the Civil War, and vaccine usage became normalized at this time as well. Both the Union and Confederate armies were vaccinated for smallpox, but there were no companies manufacturing vaccines. Instead, medics simply transferred pox scabs and other bodily materials from vaccinated patients to unvaccinated ones. Future vaccine manufacturer Pfizer ramped up its production of chemicals that were used as battlefield and hospital disinfectants, as well as a mercury chloride chemical called calomel, sometimes called a miracle drug of its day, a harsh purgative used as a laxative and was even used to treat syphilis, cholera, and tuberculosis. Pfizer benefited from the war in another lucrative way. High tariffs imposed on certain foreign items, like tartars. Now, put away your fish sticks, because it's not tartar sauce, but items like cream of tartar, used to make, among other things, baking powder, which, if you listen to our recent show on the history of cookbooks, you'll know changed the way that people baked and competed in reality TV baking competitions. Even as Brooklyn was rapidly growing in the late 19th century, so too was business booming for the two Charleses here, who over the next three decades quickly expanded Charles, Pfizer and company into dozens of smaller lots surrounding their original headquarters here on Bartlett and Tompkins, creating a small chemical empire of sorts. Like many areas of the Eastern District by the late 19th century, the chemical aroma of must have been something else. Now, perhaps you're asking a very good question right now. Wasn't it all kinds of dangerous handling all these different kinds of chemicals? You'd be right, although there doesn't seem to have been any catastrophic disasters here at the Pfizer campus. But let me turn your attention to another Brooklyn chemical industrialist, E.R. Squibb a former physician at the Brooklyn Navy Yard who branched out in the year 1858 into the manufacture of ether and chloroform. In that year, his laboratory caught fire several times, and during one of those disasters, he was terribly burned and scarred for life. He lived in Brooklyn Heights and actually had a massive laboratory here on Columbia Heights. His legacy lives on today in the massive pharmaceutical company Bristol-Myers Squibb. Today, you can find a small park in Brooklyn named in his honor. And the factory of Squibb and Sons still stands in the neighborhood. In 1969, the Jehovah's Witnesses moved into the factory, replacing the gigantic Squibb sign with that touting the religious magazine The Watchtower. back to Pfizer here, by 1880, they had another big success with citric acid, made from imported Italian lemons. This is one of those strange chemicals that seems to pop up on the contents label of pretty much everything that tastes good. Citric acid is a food and drink flavoring and was extremely essential to a newfangled item that one could find down at the drugstore, soft drinks. From Pepsi to Dr. Pepper, soft drinks were considered somewhat healthy. Patent medicines that aided digestion and cured nervousness, among other dubious claims. And all of them included citric acid, and much of that from Brooklyn and the factory of Charles Pfizer. In this 30-40 year time frame here, the apothecary itself had radically changed. With industrialization and the post-Civil War boom for manufactured drugs, that mortar and pestle work moved to the back of these stores as their aisles filled with new medications contained in tablets, in capsules, and then mass-bottled in pre-packaged glass containers. Soda fountains, remember soda, fountains were excellent revenue generators for small drugstores. But the industry itself had changed with the ascension of pharmaceutical innovation and a closer and now very obvious link between physicians and medicine and pharmaceuticals that began to attack the root causes of illnesses, not just the symptoms. Into the 20th century, trained pharmacists dispensing drugs prescribed by doctors deadly became the norm. By the time Brooklyn became a part of Greater New York via the consolidation of 1898, Pfizer had become one of the new borough's most successful businesses. Charles Erhart died in 1891, 2 days after Christmas at the age of 70. Charles Pfizer lived almost 15 years longer, dying at his villa in Newport, Rhode Island on October 19th, 1906, from his Brooklyn Daily Eagle obituary the following day, quote, Charles Pfizer was one of those keen, able, hardworking, and resourceful Germans who came over to America in the 40s. The Pfizer wealth will probably be found to foot up into the millions and the octogenarian left behind him, in addition, one of the most important chemical manufacturing firms in America. Charles could not have possibly imagined what would happen next for his company. In 1917, Italian lemons became kind of hard to get, you know, World War I and all that. So Pfizer hired the food chemist James Curry, who with his 16-year-old assistant, Jasper Kane, came up with a method of extracting citrus acid from the fermentation of a certain fungus, Aspergillus niger. War would again change the fate of Pfizer. In 1928, the Scottish physician Alexander Fleming discovered the antibiotic known as penicillin, but was unable to manufacture it on a mass scale. But over a decade later, the rising aggressions of Nazi Germany would spark an international conflict and a swath of devastation never before seen. In 1941, England and the United States turned to the pharmaceutical industry for ways to mass-produce this potentially life-saving antibiotic. Now, young Jasper had now become doctor Jasper Kane, and had continued working for Pfizer, streamlining that fungal citrus acid idea, developing a deep tank fermentation process that used molasses for raw material rather than refined sugar. To so quote at length from Dr. Kane's New York Times obituary, because it's just that amazing. Quote. It was his idea in 1942 that this deep tank mold fermentation method could also make penicillin, streptomycin, and other antibiotics in large quantities. At the time, hundreds of Allied soldiers were dying daily from infections. Desperate measures were in order, and Dr. Kane's production idea was put to the test in 1943. Pfizer bought an ice making plant in Brooklyn and made its conversion a round the clock race against time. The plant opened in March of 1943 with 14, 7,500 gallon tanks and was producing more than 45 million units of broad spectrum antibiotics by the end of the year. The process was shared with other major companies for the war effort. In his book, A Search for Penicillin, David Wilson wrote, quote, It is the biggest single failing of the myth about penicillin that it ignores the technological breakthrough of deep fermentation, a breakthrough that was every bit as vital to the successful development of penicillin as any of the more dramatic laboratory work. Dr. Kane rose to become a vice president and director of biochemical research and development at Pfizer overseeing the search for many other compounds to be tested and fashioned into medicines. Dr. Jasper Kane died in 2004 at age 101 at his home in Florida. Within a few years, Pfizer would be the world's largest producer of natural penicillin. This wonder drug would change the world and significantly expand Pfizer's profile by the second half of the 20th century through corporate mergers and expanded offices in several countries. In the 1950s, after decades of producing chemical compounds for other people's products, Pfizer got into pharmaceutical sales itself with the production of the antibiotic teramycin. Soon, the shelves of drugstores were filled with Pfizer products, and just as they had done a century prior, these potentially bitter-tasting medicines were delivered in sweet-tasting lozenges and gels. One Pfizer brand of cough syrups and gels was even called Candets. The drugstore of the 1950s was a fascinating place. The role of the pharmacist was changing. To quote author Glenn J. Pearson, quote, by the 1950s, large scale manufacturing of medicinal products by the pharmaceutical industry and the introduction of prescription only legal status for most therapeutic agents limited the role of pharmacists to compounding, dispensing, and labeling prefabricated products. Unquote. In some communities, pharmacies became the central source of health, a place for medical assistance for those without health care. Drug retail chains were beginning to revolutionize the industry as well, such as Walgreens, a series of stores from Chicago's south side that survived through the Prohibition era by selling medicinal whiskey. One drugstore chain beloved by New Yorkers opened three locations in the city in the year 1960, named for the location of their warehouse between Duane Street and Reed Street, Duane Reed. But the small business, family-owned drugstore was still the most common you could find in the 1950s, becoming a place where the community came together for medical needs, perhaps to hang out at the soda fountain, maybe to buy some cigarettes. One drugstore in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Diker Heights, owned by second-generation Italian-Americans, presents a common arrangement for these kinds of places— The father worked in the pharmacy in the back, the mother and daughter worked the aisles and the register, and the son served as a delivery boy. That particular family drugstore was named Fauci Pharmacy, and that boy on his bike delivering drugs to those in need was a young Anthony Fauci. In 1961, Pfizer's business headquarters, which had been located in lower Manhattan, would move to Midtown, where it remains to this day at 235 East 42nd Street, very close to the United Nations. Although it looks like they are preparing to move over to the Hudson Yards area in a, in a new building called The Spiral. Believe it or not, though, the company still retained its original Brooklyn location until 2008, which is a pretty impressive run. Today, many other businesses populate this historic building and it's 660,000 square feet of space, including verticulture farms, an aquaponic farm that raises fish. Even so, I imagine that the air at the old Pfizer building here smells a bit better than it used to back in the olden days of Borax and Iodine. For more information and images related to this show, visit our website boweryboyshistory.com where you will also find a shorter article version of this show. In addition, you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at Bowery Boys. And finally Everybody, please go get vaccinated. Let's get this over with. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not.
0: Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.